Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I hope you're doing all right. I hope you're hanging in there. I know that the world is crazy and a lot is going on right now in the Middle East and online and everywhere. But to that end, I do have a conversation that is germane and helpful, I hope. So at least there's that. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube, follow the Other People podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Lee McIntyre. He has a new book out called On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. I mean, I've got a quotation in the book uh, about this. This one I think I can, uh, I can find. Hannah Arendt said, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, true and false, no longer exists. They don't need you to be a true believer. They need you to give up. All right, that was Lee McIntyre. His new book is called On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. It is available from MIT Press, and it is a very timely book about one of our most pressing issues. It is about disinformation, the intentional and concerted effort by some bad actors in this world to destroy facts and to eliminate consensual reality for their own nefarious ends, to make, for example, America and other Western democracies ungovernable. That's a tough word to say, ungovernable. In this book on disinformation, Lee McIntyre is making the case that we are living through a time and through a set of circumstances that did not come from out of nowhere. Indeed, it is traceable, it is definable, and it is in his view, the culmination of 70 years of strategic denialism by bad actors in both the political and corporate realms. 
And most critically, this book offers up some concrete ideas for how ordinary citizens can fight back and can try to turn the tide against this scourge that is now threatening the very fabric of our society. The stakes are high. And considering what we have lived through over the past several years and what we have lived through and witnessed on this planet just over the past couple of weeks in the Middle East, and considering the fact that we are now headed into an election year in 2024 here in the United States, I figure it's as good a time as any to speak with a guy like Lee McIntyre about disinformation and the war on truth what it is, what it means, and most vitally, how to win it. So my conversation with Lee McIntyre is coming up momentarily. A quick reminder before we get started that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe over at Substack. The newsletter is pretty straightforward. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show. I also share a list each week of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, head on over to Substack and subscribe. Likewise, you can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you love this show, if you want to see it continue into the future, go join the Patreon community, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. All right. So my guest once again is Lee McIntyre. He is a scholar of science denial. He is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. And he was formerly the executive director of the Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University. He has taught philosophy at a bunch of different places, Colgate, Boston University, Tufts Experimental College, and Harvard Extension School. And he's just a great person with whom to speak about this subject matter. And he has, I think, some very vital arguments to make and some very important information to share. So let's get to it. Here I am in conversation with Lee McIntyre, And his new book, once again, is called On Disinformation. I was a little boy, uh, grew up in a house that had a lot of books in it. My parents had never gone to college. They were, but they had great respect for knowledge. And uh, the, the ultimate piece of knowledge, according to my father, was the World Book Encyclopedia, because they had everything in it. You know, and he said, if you just read the encyclopedia, you would know everything. And so I took that as my mission in childhood. I was going to read the encyclopedia, and I did. And my favorite stories, my, my favorite uh, uh, entries in the encyclopedia were about scientists and philosophers and writers. And I was kind of fascinated with the people who had biographies in the encyclopedia. Just, you know, what were they famous for? It's easy to look at the kings and the you know, the emperors and the generals and, you know, presidents and people like that. But I was interested in the people who made a contribution to science or, or, you know, literature, the ideas. And I was scandalized reading about the times in human history when, you know, they persecuted Galileo or, you know, they burned Giordano Bruno at the stake or, you know, they, they, uh, 
uh, sentence Socrates. I mean, this sounds like stuff that a kid wouldn't be interested in, but I mean, to a kid, it just seemed to me like, who were these idiots? You know, what, 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 I mean, the dark ages, that was just a fascinating concept to me. You mean there were eight or 900 years when, you know, knowledge didn't really move forward? And then how did it happen that it did again? I mean, so, you know, I learned a lot of world history from the world book. It's a great, you know, way to learn. I went to a terrible public school, so it was great to, you know, to learn uh, from the encyclopedia. What, where was this? Portland, Oregon. I was, I was uh, okay. kind of in the, the wrong side of the tracks there in Portland, Oregon, out near the uh, the airport and the strip joints and such. So, I and I remember thinking, and you know, at this point in my work with the encyclopedia, I was probably a, a you know a little old enough to have this kind of thought. Um, I was born too late. I mean, how easy would it have been to be a great person if, you know, all you had to do was stand up for science and reason? I mean, that's that's so easy. You know, all these these people that you read about who had these entries in the encyclopedia, uh, they were lucky to be born in a time when, you know, so many benighted people around them that they could stand out just for believing in all these wonderful things. And, you know, here I am born into the world in which all truth and knowledge had already been discovered. Then what happens? I grow up and I realize that I'm still in that world, especially, you know, in the last few years. I mean, really, really grown up, realized that the things that I was scandalized by in childhood and the things I was reading about, you know, kind of the people who were rejecting knowledge and, you know, persecuting people who were, uh, you know, in favor of advancement uh, still exist. So here I am today writing about truth and science and reason, standing up for the same things I believed in as a child. And that feels pretty good. It's, it's kind of nice. It feels like I, I kept a promise to myself from when I was little that I was going to make a contribution to this. And I feel like I'm doing that. So it feels to me, and I think it feels to many people, like we are living in an age of regression, especially over the past five years when it comes to things like consensus reality and a belief in the scientific method and kind of things that we took for granted, or at least I took for granted. It sounds like you took them for yes. granted previously. What's your assessment of the past several years? It is a regression, yes, no, or is it something that was always there and we just didn't fully recognize it, some combination? It is a regression. But what I didn't realize is that this has happened throughout human history. It's not linear. It's not just this, as we know from the Dark Ages, right? There are ages in which ideas bloom and then ages in which they wither. And we're in an age now when I think people will look back and think of it as the disinformation age. Because, I mean, one way to be in the Dark Ages is when knowledge is hidden, when the books don't exist anymore. You know, they're, they're just, they're, they're either, you know, hidden in some church somewhere and people don't know how to, not that many people are literate and, and they can't translate it. You know, and the, the monks need to keep the flame lit. So knowledge is hidden. Another way to hide things is to hide it in a sea of disinformation, to just have so much pollution in the information sphere, that we can't tell what's true and what's false. So 
it is a retrogression, but it's a different kind of retrogression because it's a retrogression based on the explosion of human knowledge. And you wouldn't think that that would lead to a retrogression, but it has because uh, I think to that scene, one of my uh, favorite scenes in a movie of all time is uh, Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail. When he comes into the room and he's finally there, the Holy Grail is there, but he doesn't know which one it is because there are a hundred fakes surrounding it. That's as bad as, so the analogy I think of is, uh, I said in the book, disinformation is the new censorship. You can have the grail there, just one, and hide it, put it in your backpack, and Indiana comes in the room and he doesn't, he can't see it because you've got it hidden. But another way to hide it is to put 99 fakes around it so that when he comes into the room, he doesn't know which one is the Holy Grail. That's the era we live in now. So it's the same challenge that existed in earlier eras. It's just a different mechanism. Yeah, in the past it was censorship and now it's disinformation. It is. And before we go any further, I think it's probably useful for listeners to make the distinction between disinformation and misinformation, because I think sometimes these two terms get confused. It's an important question. It's in, in my field, it's really, I think, the most important question. Misinformation is an accident, but disinformation is a lie, which is to say that there are people who are misinformed. They accidentally believe something false. You know, they think that it's true and they pass it on to other people who may also think that it's true. It's just something that, you know, think of it like a, a rumor, you know, nobody's really sure and, and they pass on or it sounds true. Um, disinformation is intentional. Disinformation is intentionally created falsehood that is shared with people for because you want them to believe the falsehood, because it serves the disinformer's interests. So the important distinction here is to realize that with, with disinformation, it's on purpose. There's somebody behind it, and they're doing it for a motive, right? It's not an accident. It's because they want power or they want money. Think about the cigarette companies in the 1950s who wanted to obfuscate the question of whether smoking caused lung cancer. And they did it through public relations, and it worked for 40 years. Think about all the big money, the big fossil fuel money behind climate change denial. They, you know, they pursue a campaign of disinformation, of strategic denial, because it serves their interests, their monetary interests. Interesting thing, that is the exact same blueprint, the same pathway used now by Donald Trump when he talks about the 2020 election. He's doing the same thing that the cigarette companies and the, you know, the, the uh, fossil fuel companies did you know, with scientific topics, but he's doing it now about elections and crime and immigration and you know, other factual matters. I mean, there are right and wrong answers to whether or not the 2020 election was stolen or whether the crime rate's going up or down or, you know, they're, these are empirical questions, but he's making them into political questions. He's polarizing people around factual issues. And so that, that and, and, you know, the earlier examples I just gave put science in peril. I think that the problem has now metastasized. It's a strong word, but I think it's true. From science denial to reality denial, so that it's not just science that's under threat, it's democracy itself. And we've 
we've got just a little over a year to get ahead of this problem, or I think we're in real trouble. You trace the history of modern science denial to December 15th, 1953, and decisions made by tobacco companies to try to muddy the waters around whether or not smoking was bad for your health. Of all That's things, right. it seems like the most obvious question, and you know, with it the does. benefit of hindsight, or even just like common sense, <laughs> you know, breathing smoke. I know my grandfather was always vehemently against smoking, and you know, really impressed that upon my dad. And this was mid twentieth century. There were people who had it sorted out that inhaling smoke repeatedly was bad for you, even in the absence of scientific, uh, yeah. you know, consensus. But you have that, and then you have the fossil fuel companies, as you have said. A question for you, historically, is did anything similar exist prior? Is that really the genesis, 1953? December 15th, 1953 is the day that the heads of the big tobacco companies in the United States got together at the Plaza Hotel in New York City. And I sat in that hotel you know, to see where they were. And they hired a public relations specialist to come in and advise them because this study was going to be published that, you know, showing this causal link. And the public relations uh, person told them, fight the science. Now, this story is enormously well told in Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway's book, Merchants of Doubt, where they created what she calls the tobacco strategy that was then followed by the fossil fuel companies and such later. Now, look, I think that that's where modern science denial started. Modern science denial. When you could have things like, you could take out ads, full page ads in newspapers, which is you know what the tobacco companies did, and go to editors and journalists and try to get them to tell the other side of the story, right? Try to raise doubt where there was none and you know, make it a controversy, something that there was actually scientific consensus on. But of course there was earlier science denial. I mean, I just mentioned uh, Giordano Bruno earlier. I mean, I, I stood at the on the very spot in Rome at the foot of, now there's a statue of Giordano Bruno in the Campo di Fiori in Rome, where he was burned at the stake for in 1600 for believing that the stars were other suns and therefore that there could be, you know, other planets and, you know, where there are other planets, there could be other life. And this was heresy and, you know, he was executed. Well, that's science denial with extreme prejudice, right? I mean, you know, you think about the people today, you know, the scientists who are, you know, afraid of, uh, uh, you know, being persecuted for their work. I mean, that's persecution. You can trace it back, you know, even earlier than that. I mean, lying probably as long as we've had language. Uh, so, I mean, this this all goes, the first conspiracy theory was Nero, you know, also in Rome. I mean, even, even earlier. So, you know, this goes way back. What's different now is amplification. You know, December 15th, 1953 was the beginning of modern science to know because that's when people figured out that you could have a public relations campaign around a factual matter and pursue it, not in scientific journals, but in the popular press. That was a great innovation. And they rode that horse until, you know, the $200 billion settlement in the 1990s when they had already sold, you know, billions of dollars worth of cigarettes. But we're now living in an era in which there's been another iteration on that model, which is the internet and social media. 
because now science denial is not the guy with the tinfoil hat standing on the corner with the mimeograph sheet. It's the person with a microphone that gets them to the edge of the earth. And the thing is, it doesn't take that many of them. Uh, the Center for Countering Digital Hate found in 2019 that 65% of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people. Now, they're, they were busy. They were a busy, you know, they call them the disinformation dozen, right? But 12 people with the internet can do a hell of a lot of damage. And it can make it seem to other people as if, well, you know, what's going on? Is everybody questioning this? You know, I don't know if it's true or not. So, you know, you don't need to take out full page ads in American newspapers anymore. You just need to have a website and, you know, a certain shameless ability to scream at the top of your lungs, uh, you know, falsehood. Now, some of the folks amplifying disinformation actually believe it. So technically speaking, I suppose you could say it's misinformation. In my view, if it starts from a lie, somebody's lie, it's disinformation. And it's no less dangerous if it's shared by somebody who's witting or unwitting. So, I mean, maybe it's too early to talk about solutions, but one of the solutions I pursue in my book is where we can really crack down on this is amplification of disinformation. We need to figure out, I mean, how to deplatform the liars, how to get that microphone out from in front of the people who are intentionally trying to uh, lie. Well, when it comes to political interests, and we, we're talking about corporate interests and their monetary concerns, but we also very much live in an age where political interests are sort of using what you call the post-truth playbook. Yes. And historically, uh, you know, as we've touched upon, autocratic leaders and people who aspire to be autocrats try to control people by controlling information sources. Yes. And in an era that precedes mass media and social media and digital media, it was easier to censor. We still see some of that today, where people's access to media is censored in places like China and Russia. Yes. But in general, it seems like autocracies are evolving into governments that have faux elections. Yes. They nominally have elections, but the That's elections right. are gamed. And there's really somebody mm -hmm. behind the scenes or many somebodies behind right. the scenes who are putting their thumb on the scale. So... It's important, I think, to flag that because to some casual observers who aren't super tuned in, it might might seem like, how could there be an autocrat? There's elections. He just keeps winning. Sure. Well, that's not that's not the it's case at all. It's called an electoral dictatorship. It's yeah. happening around the world. And yeah, and I think there are people here in the United States who would like to see that happen here. Yeah, where That is the danger. And, and, it, and it, by the way, it happens in the same way. In Hungary and Turkey and Russia, that's the road that we're on, and we need to turn to turn off that path, or we too will find ourselves, you know, going down that road. And people don't. I, I don't know if it's that people want it to happen, or they're not willing to do the work to keep it from happening, or they don't think they don't take it seriously, or just the American exceptionalist idea that well, it couldn't happen here. But, you know, one of the people whose work I admire the most is uh, Tim Snyder wrote uh, On Tyranny, which, you know, I 
sort of modeled my book after, you know, on tyranny, on disinformation. I wanted to write a book like he did. And, you know, he pointed out that everything that was going on in the United States around the 2016 election, he had just seen happening in Eastern Europe. And, you know, it, it led to a very dark place. I mean, Hungary is no longer an actual democracy. And one questions what just happened in the election in Turkey, I think, legitimately as well. Now, they're a NATO ally, so, you know, is that a pleasant thing to say? No. But, you know, I noticed, for instance, in Turkey, they just passed a law against fake news, against disinformation. So you might say, oh, well, good, they've figured out how to fight it. But they get to define what's true and what's false, and they're using it to, to punish dissidents and, you know, the enemies of the regime. In fact, I just saw yesterday something put out by whatever their uh, fighting disinformation agency is called. Maybe it's called the Ministry of Truth, like in 1984. I forget. But I mean, that's the idea, right? They're pushing out disinformation about the Israeli-Hamas war. So under the guise of fact-checking, under the guise of fighting disinformation. They're creating disinformation under the guise of, disinform uh, of fighting disinformation. So this is, this is a danger, and it's an insidious danger, because uh, I, f I forget there, there was a piece in The New Yorker years back, uh, I think it was Evan Osnos, wrote about you know, how this creeps up on us. It's like your eyes adjusting at twilight. You don't realize how dark it's getting because you can still see but it's getting darker and darker. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's the environment that so many of us are experiencing online and in particular on social media right now. Yes. With respect to the conflict in the Middle East. That's right. between Hamas and Israel, where just yesterday there was this horrific bombing of a hospital and so much finger pointing and back and forth about who was to blame to the point where it became confusing to the casual observer trying to parse it. That's the goal. That's the goal of disinformation, right? To, to make it, to get to get you to believe the falsehood, and if not, at least to make you so confused and cynical that you think, uh, who knows, uh, uh, you know, give up. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. Or to paint a false equivalence. 
I, I watched this yesterday. I mean, not even 24 hours ago play out on American media when one of the shows on MSNBC was, you know, had the, the big, you know, the Chiron on the bottom about, you know, missile strikes hospital in Gaza, and they were showing all the, the bloody images. And, you know, the, it was the lead story, of course. And they said, you know, there's a hospital was bombed in Gaza. Um, how do they put it? Um, Hamas said that Israel did it, but Israel denies responsibility. So, it's a, so that's the kind of typical way that journalists will tell a story like that, right? That it's, you know, both sides of it to show that they're not politically biased. But then they immediately went to a guest. It was Nicole Wallace at four o'clock on MSNBC. And she's very good at, at fighting disinformation. I mean, I watch her show because she's very good. She, she went to a guest who was a colonel in the IDF in Israel. And she was pissed. The colonel said, I have just had to sit here for the last five minutes and watch you amplify disinformation. And I kind of <laughs> set up, you know, thinking, you know, wow, so disinformation is the, the lead story here. And Nicole Wallace, who I said, you know, does a good job on her program, said, you know, what, what do you mean? And, you know, she, she talked about, you know, how Israel didn't do this. And, uh, you know, so it was disinformation. And then the instinct that Nicole Wallace had is, I think, a common one amongst journalists to then say, ah, but can you prove that Israel didn't do it? But how do you prove a negative? How, you know, then it becomes just he said, she said, how do you really get to the bottom of it? At which point the Israeli colonel said, because Israel does not target hospitals. Now, at the end of that exchange, does the observer understand? The, under, the observer understands that there's disinformation going on, but they don't understand who's responsible. They don't understand which side because right. there's really no context. The only context that was given on the program is there was a bombing. Both sides blame the other. What's what's the context? And, and, you know, in that kind of an environment of polarization, people are going to believe their own side. Well, then, and this is why Nicole Wallace is a good journalist. She then, you know, took the criticism and provided the context. She said, OK, so if I understand it correctly, the context here is this, you know, at a certain time, I think it was uh, uh, they though I'm not sure they, they knew this uh, at that point whether it was Hamas or um, is it Islamic Jihad, I, I forget what they're, they're called, somebody had fired a rocket at, at Israel. And Israel reported that no such rocket ever landed. But within that same time frame, a hospital blew up in Gaza. So when you put it that way, it begins to make some sense that maybe it was a misfired missile from Gaza, you know, from that side of it that hit their own hospital. But then the immediate instinct was, oh my goodness, let's use this as an opportunity to create disinformation and blame Israel for it. Now, look, I'm not claiming that I have any, you know, particular evidence or knowledge of, you know, how that actually played out. I'm not just taking the Israeli colonel at her word. But I do note that today Biden said, that, you know, based on the intelligence that he's seen, that that was correct, that it was a misfired 
missile, I think, from Islamic Jihad. Now, uh, presumably, he has better access to intelligence than I do. But then some people are going to say that he's a liar, that he's right. creating disinformation. And, you know, so now I saw that there, you know, some folks are attacking the American embassy in, in Lebanon. So this is how things spin out of control from disinformation. How do you get to the bottom of it? It's so insidious because it polarizes people around a falsehood and makes it really easy to just, you know, pick a side and believe what your side says or to just become so cynical that you give up on the idea of truth. And when that happens, there's no blame, there's no accountability, and fascists love it. That's, that's when the authoritarian comes in. Uh, Schneider said it best, post-truth is pre-fascism. Right, right. You, I mean, because everybody just gets to have their own reality. There their are, there reality. are no, no consensus that's it. truths. And That's when it, it comes to the post-truth playbook, and I want to go over this because I think it's useful to people as observers online and elsewhere to understand how this is done. And I'll just kind of, I mean, I don't know if you have this uh, like I've got off a the page, top of your head. I've got a page in my, in my book where I do this, but uh, I don't know which page it is and you probably got it up right there. So, Well, yeah. So the post-truth playbook, I'll just tick off kind of the bullet points. Sure. Uh, attack the truth tellers. So this is something that an, an, an autocrat or an aspiring autocrat yeah. or some corporate interest yeah. will do yeah. to try to muddy the waters and make things unclear and to create this kind of unstable environment where everybody gets to have their own reality. Somebody yeah. speaks the truth, you attack them. Or attack them before they speak the truth, attack their credibility in advance sometimes. I think too, we see often from autocrats like Putin, this is a, from like the Russian disinformation playbook is to accuse your opponent of that, uh, the, yeah. that of which you yourself are guilty. That, that's a disinformation tactic, yeah. Yeah, so attack the truth tellers. The second one is to lie rampantly about everything. And when yeah. it comes to this, I think Americans in the modern era have, I mean, most of us anyway, with like a foot in reality, have the experience of living through a political environment where lying rampantly about everything was a daily occurrence. It, it was so over the top during the presidency of Donald Trump. I want to say the Washington Post actually went through and cataloged how many lies he told during his four years, and it was in excess of 30,000 right. lies. And there is also a somewhat infamous quote from Steve Bannon, who served in the Trump administration, where he talked about the Democrats not being the enemy. The media was the key enemy, and the way to defeat the media was to, quote, flood the zone with shit. So... Yeah. That's lying rampantly about everything. And it sounds like that Holy Grail example, doesn't it? Just, you know, you can't censor the truth, maybe, but you can make it disappear in, you know, all the fake that you put up around it. By the way, that technique is called the fire hose of falsehood. It's a Russian, uh, it's an old Soviet uh, uh, disinformation technique. Okay, so something about Donald Trump that I think characterizes his public presentation and his life in general is at least the appearance of chaos. He's such a chaotic human, emotionally, 
politically he's chaotic. He was a Democrat, he's a Republican. He doesn't stand for it. It doesn't seem like he has any real operating mm -hmm. philosophy. He's just, you know, glomming onto whatever he thinks serves his interests best in whatever given moment. A confusion that I have, and I think that a lot of people have as they watch him operate, is trying to discern how much uh, strategy there is mm -hmm. in what he's doing, how much he is aware of what he's doing and its effects. Do you have a sense of that? Because he is, I think in the book, you, you kind of call him, or at least quote somebody who called him a masterful operator when it comes to the dissemination of disinformation. Yeah, he, I mean, look, you don't have to think he's a genius to think that he's good at propaganda. I mean, he's not an intelligent person but he is a near genius level at the dissemination of propaganda. Think of a, a feral dog, right? They, they just have a certain instinct for, you know, how this works. And I mean, look, I don't think that Trump has necessarily made a formal uh, academic study of Russian disinformation techniques, but he uses a lot of them. You can put Putin's speeches and Trump's speeches side by side and, you know, just what you were talking about, accusing the other side of that which you're guilty. I don't remember the pithy name for what that one's called. The Firehose of Falsehood. There's another one called Whataboutism, which, you know, we all know about. I mean, these are all tried and true Russian disinformation techniques that Trump has borrowed. He borrowed a page from what the science deniers did and tobacco and uh, climate denial. He borrowed a page from back to the to 1920, what Lenin's Cheka was doing in the Russian Revolution. You could win a war without firing a shot if you engaged in you know psychological warfare manipulation, disinformation. It's where it was really invented. It's a, a Russian word, the, the, the root for disinformation. He knows this. He knows how to do this. Not because he's a brilliant man, but because he's had a lifetime of figuring out what works to manipulate people. The analogy that I sometimes use, it's, it's unkind, is, uh, though I'm not precisely, it's unkind to a lot of people. Think about a used car salesman. He may not be smarter than you, but he's had all day, every day to think about how to fool you when you walk onto his lot. So he knows the tricks that you're going to fall for, like anchoring bias. He's going he's gonna to start with the sticker price. You're not going to start with, well, how much do you want to pay? You know, he'll come to that later, maybe. You know, so, I mean, there are different techniques that salespeople use, again, not because they're geniuses, but because there's a certain amount of psychological manipulation and gaslighting that goes, and I'm talking about unethical salespeople. And that's what I think Trump does. He's really good at it. Yeah, he's excellent. And he, I think, I think sh being a shameless human being. That helps. And kind of, yeah, I was going to say, that's a huge asset when it comes <laughs> to being uh, like a master disseminator yep. of disinformation. He did, just has absolutely no qualms at all about lying repeatedly. Doesn't have, doesn't seem to lose a wink of sleep over any of it. Yep. And uh, to continue with the post-truth playbook, we, we've already talked about attacking the truth tellers and then lying rampantly. 
The, the next one is encourage distrust and polarization, which Trump certainly has nice. done quite a lot of. Yeah. So that means fake news. Mm-hmm. That's a great example. He coined that phrase and has repeated it ad nauseum to try to sow confusion around what's true and what's false and to encourage mistrust That's right. of any counter-narrative presented by the media, a counter-narrative to his particular interests at whatever given time. If someone offers such a thing, that is fake news. If someone says something that serves his interests, that is real news. Likewise, uh, an electoral result, yeah, an electoral result that favors him, that's a fair and free election. An election in which he is not the winner, whether it's the general election of 2020 or even the Iowa caucus in 2016, where he called out that election as being fraudulent, right? When Ted Cruz beat him or whoever it was. So that's the, that's the way he operates and people follow it. It's laughable, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's like the little kid on the playground. Well, this time the loser's the winner, you know, so, so right. that they can feel good. And I mean, you can see right through it. But, but it works. It works for him, and he knows, you know, how to how to pull that uh, how to pull that lever. By the way, he didn't invent the term fake news. I think he wishes that he did, but he but he co-opted it. He does this often. You know, he'll co-opt a, a term and say, you know, maybe maybe I I invented that. Um, but uh, I mean, he's put such a bad taste in the mouth that people don't use the term. <laughs> they don't like to use the term anymore because you know he's he's taking it over like when he says witch hunter you know something like that it's become one right. of his branding things another disinformation technique repetition you the the big lie is not only a big lie you have to repeat the big lie over and over again well election interference election, is his one of his big refrains yeah yeah he's trying to kind of make sure that that's burned into the brains yeah of Americans and of like his followers in particular, so that they believe any kind of accountability that he is held to is simply an attempt to try to, you know, stop him from regaining power. Uh, The next thing on the list of the post-truth playbook is creating confusion and cynicism. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very much tied to the fire hose of falsehood and just the media environment that we live in. It's sort of self-explanatory. When there are so many, as you know, to continue with your Indiana Jones analogy, when there are so many possible grails in front of you and there's so much information and BS coming at you at any given moment, it's easy to become confused as to what's real or what's true and what's false. And then when that experience is repeated hour after hour, day after day, especially in this era of a 24-hour news cycle, it's easy to grow exhausted and cynical. Give up. And that is, that's it, to give up. And that is what the autocrat wants. Yeah, I mean, I've got a quotation in the book uh, about this. This one I think I can, uh, I can find. Hannah Arendt said, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, true and false, no longer exists. They don't need you to be a true believer. They need you to give up. Yeah. And we can't give we up. We can't give up. And if people do give up in enough, in great enough numbers, and if the autocrat is successful, then you eventually get to a point 
where that person and his or her administration is claiming that truth is only available from the leader himself or herself. Right, which is the really such a, an important moment because then you've undermined not just a particular falsehood, you know, not just a particular truth, but you've radicalized people to once you've got them to mistrust around facts in general so that they'll only believe the leader of their team. That's what's so insidious about the polarization effect of disinformation because you're not just wrecking one truth, you're wrecking all the truths at once. You're, you're blowing up the pathway by which truth is discovered and uh, uh, you know, uh, transmitted to people because it becomes just you know, a matter of opinion and you, know, you prefer the opinion of the person who's the leader. I think that this was one of, or this has been one of the most unnerving and destabilizing aspects of watching Donald Trump and MAGA Republicans operate, and just the larger kind of right-wing ecosystem politically and in the media over the past several years, is to witness Trump repeatedly shift the conversation in the direction of whatever his whim happens to be at that mm -hmm. moment and to watch everybody follow. I mean, this is a guy who has contradicted himself on the record hundreds of times and yet Doesn't matter. he can do so without any penalty and everybody in the right-wing media will just go, okay, that's what he believes now. That's what I believe. That's the truth. That's right. That is deeply unnerving to me to watch and it's amazing too to think that it could happen. How can people in mass find themselves in such a state because where they would they want to follow someone like that well i mean sometimes they're afraid you know the cynical people in congress who don't like him but dare not contradict him because they'll lose their voters but you know he does have the the true believers as well you know one one of the best in my earlier book post truth one of the touchstones for me, you know, something else I was reading when I was, you know, growing up, about 14 years old, it became my favorite book, is uh, Orwell's 1984, where you realize that the really the scariest parts of 1984 are not the physical violence, it's the psychological violence, the, the violence to truth. You know, the idea of the, minis the ministry of truth, you know, just the, the fact that they, they call it that. The fact that Winston is a fact checker, you know, he's a censor, a fact checker. You know, he works in the Ministry of Truth. And there's that one searing scene uh, in the book where he finds a piece of evidence, finally, that contradicts, you know, the official word. But he's so demoralized and so scared that he he hides it under a piece of paper and then he realizes that that's not enough and he puts it in the memory hole. Notice it's even called the, the memory hole right, to get rid of it. I mean, Orwell saw all of this coming. Uh, and, you know, I in my book, Post-Truth, I start just about every chapter with a quotation from Orwell, you know, recognizing that this is what we're, you know, what we're up against. I just gave a talk recently uh, uh, to a group of uh, uh young people from Russia who were visiting the United States. And they told me that 
the number one selling book in Russia is Orwell's 1984. I was shocked that it was even for sale. Well, no, it's, it's interesting that you say that because years ago, this might have even been on my honeymoon. This is the kind of book I read on my honeymoon. <laughs> yeah. I read a book called, like, I think it was called like George Orwell in Burma. Mm-hmm. And it was all about, it was a work of nonfiction, if I'm recalling this correctly, about the power of that book in Burmese culture and the way that it became a kind of cherished piece of contraband that was passed mm-hmm. from person to person. Yeah. It's a very popular book in that very authoritarian and oppressive yes. society. So it's no wonder why a book like that would register with people who yeah. are living under such regimes. Yeah. And uh, just you know, in the service of time, I want to jump to uh, something that we've kind of already been talking about, but it has to do with why the denialists, whether they are denying climate change <laughs> or they are denying like consensus reality on political issues or denying the amorality of Donald Trump, uh, why they believe bullshit so strongly. This is confusing to a lot of us who are observing these things and saying, this is such an obvious falsehood. Why are people attached so strongly to such obvious BS? And something that you point to is that their beliefs are rooted in identity. Yes. Exactly true. It's a very important point, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, I learned this, you know, I sort of was in denial over whether this could be true at a certain point because I thought, how, how could that be true? But I learned this because I went to a Flat Earth convention. I went to the Flat Earth International Conference in uh, November 2018 out in Denver, Colorado. And uh, there were 650 Flat Earthers there. And my, some of my friends had said, you know, you're wasting your time. They're just, they're just trolls. They're, nobody really believes this. They're just having fun. They're messing with you. Oh, no. They were absolutely dead serious. These were cons- heavy-duty conspiracy theorists who had, by and large, you know, you talk to them, you patient, calm, respectful. You can have conversations. And they would tell me their origin story. They would tell me how they became a flat earther. And it usually revolved around a story of trauma something that had happened in their life that led them to distrust other people. And once they had that distrust going, they wondered just how deep that went. And unfortunately, it went all the way down the rabbit hole to flat earth. And what I discovered is that it was very hard to convince them that they were wrong, you know, by the time they get to a convention, right? Of course. But but why? It's, it's not that and here's the thing, they know a lot of physics. They make wrong conclusions from it, but I mean, they have read more than your average person, you know, in Newton and Galileo and, and, and such, and, you know, can misuse it to their purpose. And when you question their belief, you're not just questioning what they believe, you're questioning who they are. It's their identity. That, that is their family, their people, their, their tribe. How are you going to get people to give that up? You know, so the, the problem is much harder now. It's not just to change people's mind. It's to change who they are. No wonder you can't convince people with facts. Well, in an earlier book called How to Talk to a Science Denier, where I tell that story about the, the Flat Earth Convention, I tried. I mean, you you because... 
I think that, and I, I failed at that convention, but I mean, there is a method that has empirically been shown to work, which is not in every case, but if anything's going to work, what works is talking to them not about what they believe, but why they believe it, and doing it in a respectful, calm, face-to-face manner. There, there's a little bit of empirical work on this, not a lot, and I was maybe getting ahead of some of that empirical work because I was excited about the idea that you could fight polarization by meeting people where they were and talking face-to-face. And I found that although it was very hard to convince people, it was easy to get them to listen. And the way to do that is to listen to them first. So is that part of the solution for what we're now facing with MAGA? I think there's something to that idea. And I have friends who, uh, they became friends, who run a a small, tiny think tank up in uh, rural Pennsylvania called Hear Yourself Think. They go out to Trump rallies and they film their encounters with Trump, hardcore Trumpers, talking about why they shouldn't watch Fox News and things like this, channeling respectful conversation. They teach workshops on how to do this. Really admire their work. I think that's important. That's an important mechanism, but it's not the only thing we need to do. And that's really when I started to want to write a new book, when I started to write on disinformation, because I realized you cannot debunk your way out of an infodemic. You cannot go one by one by one and find people who have their identitarian beliefs, you know, so strong and convince them to give it up. It's just not going to work. You have to, I think, crack down on the amplification. That's, you know, use the pandemic analogy. You don't just heal the sick. You keep more people from becoming sick. Uh, Problem is we don't have that much time. The 2024 election is around the corner. Elon Musk is not doing much content moderation anymore, and the other social media companies are using him as the bellwether. They're not doing as much as they were. They just dissolved the Trust and Safety Commission at Twitter, and they dissolved a similar thing at Meta. The government is in chaos. Are they going to be able to help us in time? You know, I I wrote my, my new book, I wrote on disinformation, because I wanted people to understand that you are not helpless in the face of this and that there are things that you can do. And I interviewed counterterrorism officials, cyber warriors, you know, people who were fighting disinformation on the government to government or army to army level. And I learned from them, what are the things that we can do that we're not doing? One of them was repetition. Why aren't we repeating the truth as often as Trump is repeating the lie? You know, why, why don't we have slogans for truth? It's a cognitive bias, you know, the repetition effect. It, it works. When you hear something over and over again, you're more likely to think that it's true. So why not use that for truth? I mean, that was one thing that I learned. But I mean, I really learned a lot from talking to these folks whose job it was professionally to fight this information. Of course, they're not able to fight it from a domestic audience because it's not allowed under the Constitution. So we have to do it. Well, and I think too, part and parcel to this, uh, the media, you argue in your book, has a role in fighting disinformation. And I think this is a frustration to many people who watch the news these days, and in particular watch cable news, which is really most of what's available on television anyway. 
But let's talk a little bit about what the mainstream media should be doing that they might not be doing currently. Uh, one thing you say is that the fallacy and danger of quote unquote both sides reporting right. needs to be dispensed with. Like, amen, I say. Most of us say amen. Both sides reporting is so frustrating. Can you talk about why it is dangerous? It's dangerous because, well, I mean, why do they do it? It's because the the mainstream media, I mean, look, there's Fox News in a class by themselves. They lie. They're provable liars. We're not talking about them. We're talking about, you know, the other mainstream outlets. They like still MSNBC, like MSNBC CNN. and CNN. They have their right. own interests, the in, engagement, ratings, money. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're not trying to tell the truth. It just means that there are certain narratives that you know they're they're putting forward and, and certain interests that they have, like not being accused of political bias. They don't they don't want to see people to say, well, Fox is on the left, MSN, or Fox is on the right, MSNBC is on the left. They, they hate that. So you'll often see on MSNBC shows that they will be extra hard on Biden because they felt like they were, you know, extra hard on Trump before. But whether Biden deserves it, Trump did, you know, but you, you know, you see this, you know, they're really worried about being accused of political bias. And one of the easiest ways to inoculate yourself against that criticism is to let both sides talk. But what if one side's a liar? Do you have them both on? I mean, Soledad O'Brien, who used to be on CNN, said, stop booking liars on your program. And I mean, she's right. Because, you know, and I, and I watched this happen at CNN, where, you know, they had the turmoil at the top here recently. And all of a sudden, they rebranded themselves that they were, you know, they were going to be right down the middle. Well, you know, that that was... The critics of CNN won, by the way, in, in making them rebrand that way. But okay, so they're going to do that, and which means that they are having some liars on their program. They are, you know, uh, having people on who they know have got talking points. They know they don't believe it. And they're just giving them an opportunity in some cases to say what they think, and they're not pushing back too hard. And and I didn't say this. I can't remember who did. I've got to look this up. But I, I read it the other day in somebody else's work. How do you tell both sides of a lie? I mean, it's just if you're going to tell both sides, what do you do? You 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 don't have a moon launch and then split the screen and have a flat earther trying to rebut it, right? So so why do they do that around? climate change. Well, they do it less now. Around vaccines, they're doing it less now. But they're still doing it around the 2020 election. Why in the world are they doing that? So bo both sidesism is a failure. Now, look, I'm very hard on the, the mainstream media because they are at least bystanders if they don't get in. And, and I think one reason I'm so hard on them is because I count on them so much. I want them to do better. I want to believe that, you know, they're going to come rescue us from this and they can, you know, be a part of it. But, you know, I, I just told you the example earlier about, you know, even one of the best journalists that I've ever seen didn't know what to say in the face of an accusation about disinformation and, you know, how to get out of it. She ultimately recovered pretty well. This is Nicole Wallace I'm talking about. But, you know, you see others deer in the headlights. They, they don't know how to
push back. I watched Jonathan Swan's interview of Trump. That's how to push back. But a lot of journalists, they're just, they treat it like a baseball game. They treat politics like a sport or disputes over factual matters like politics and the politics like a sport. I mean, it's just not who's winning, who's losing. That's not the way to report on factual matters. So, I mean, there are a lot of problems with the way that the media reports in this environment. And it's sad, but again, I have great hope for the media because I think that this they can be one of the agents that save us from ourselves in this environment. So another side of trying to fight back against denialism and this kind of post-truth effort uh, being waged against mm -hmm. us or war being waged against mm -hmm. us has to do with uh, politics and mm -hmm. policy. Yep. You bring up the fairness doctrine, which often mm -hmm. gets talked about in this context for people listening who might not be aware of what that is. Can you just talk about what the fairness doctrine is? Yeah, the fairness doctrine was the was passed in the I think it was the, the 50s or 60s that you know TV networks when they had somebody expressing an opinion on one side had to then give equal time to somebody on the other side. And it's because of the old model of TV. I mean, the the broadcast licenses were contingent on the idea that they were doing a service to the public. Most of TV, you know, back in the 50s and 60s was entertainment, you know, even back then. But to earn their keep, you know, to show that they were actually working the public interest, they had a half an hour a day of news, you know, about the minimum. they And they didn't expect to make any money on that. That was just, you know, oh, look at the good that we're doing for the, you know, for the public. Um, and the Fairness Doctrine was instituted to keep from, you know, what's happened now, to keep it from, you know, that reporting from just being partisan. And, and you know, I mean, that's a part of journalistic values, right? You have the news and then you have the op-ed and they're not the same, right? They're, they're you know, somebody's expressing opinion, somebody's reporting on, on the facts. But the Fairness Doctrine went away. In about in the 1990s, or maybe it was the, the 1990s, I can't I get the date wrong. I want to say it was Reagan, but I could be yeah, mistaken. Yeah, I, I think I think that's I think that's right. I think it was around the the Reagan era because the next thing that happened was Rush Limbaugh, because you didn't need anymore to have you you didn't need to be able to offer time to both sides, and so you could be partisan, and then of course trusting that there were other outlets that were going to be partisan you know, on the other side. And so it was all going to balance out. Well, that just became a runaway train. Now, look, could you reinstitute the fairness doctrine? Some people have talked about this. I'm not sure you could because cable news is not using the public airwaves. They, their broadcast that's, yeah, licenses that's the point. are not, you know, they, they're private subscribers. You, you know, you pay for that. So could, could Congress do something similar to maybe, but it couldn't be the fairness doctrine, right? And, you know, just sort of how do you get that genie back in the bottle even for, for broadcast? I mean, it's just, it, you know, it's hard once you have it. But one mistake that I think that's often made, and I saw Obama make this mistake uh, back in about 2019, he kept saying, you know, well, what we really need is just to open all this up so that so many opinions are expressed 
that the truth rises to the top. Oh no, that's not what happens. In a polluted information environment, you you know, it's, we're back to the Holy Grail again. You you In a polluted information environment, you can't trust the truth that's going to rise to the top. You have to stop the source of the pollution. And, and he later admitted that he had been wrong about that. But I mean, there are a lot of people who think, you know, the radical free speech advocates now, uh, like Musk, are saying somewhat the same thing. Well, what, we don't need any content moderation. We just need to let everybody have a voice. Well, it's yeah, chaos. he's full of it. He's full of it because he he suppresses speech that he does not find favorable. Of course. And so it's like, you know, f- free speech for me, but not for thee yeah. is kind of his he's attitude. He's disingenuous about it. Some people are not. Um, disingenuous about it. Well, there's a great quote in the book, and I think this clarified it for me, because there are really legitimate questions around the First Amendment and free speech as it pertains to trying to moderate content and make sure that disinformation is not disseminated and to make sure that we cultivate a, a media environment and a political environment that is not like hyper toxic Mm -hmm. and authoritarian in its bearing. And when it comes to the issue of free speech, there's a line in your book that I flagged where you say, quote, as if we not only should allow KKK members to get a public rally, but must also volunteer to help them hand out their leaflets too. That's right. Like this is an important point. Like it's one thing to allow somebody to say something which we find abhorrent. It's another thing to ask us to, you know, like live online in an environment where this uh, is disseminated over and over and over again. And to again. help them disseminate it. that That's the problem with, with the social media companies right now. You know, this is the problem with Musk's argument, whether he believes it or not. This is the problem with Musk's argument. He seems to be saying that any sort of content moderation is just censorship. You know, it's a violation of free speech. Well, for one thing, the First Amendment protects you against government censorship. I mean, the, the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act says that the social media companies are immune from prosecution about this. They can take down or put up whatever content they want and not get sued. So, okay, there's that. And, and I think he actually understands that, but, you know, pretends that he doesn't. But, the you know, the real problem here is that if you're just saying that free speech, you know, is the only right, then, you know, okay, you're, you're a free speech absolutist. Everybody should have a voice. But what the social media companies are doing is they're amplifying that voice. And that's a choice. They're not saying, okay, you have a voice and I hate it. But, you know, we've got to give you the parade permit. They're saying, hey, here's a microphone. You know, so they're adding to it. They're making it worse. So I think that, you know, it's, it's disingenuous for him to make the claim that content moderation is censorship. Refusing to amplify someone else's lie is not censorship. It's just refusing to participate in what you know to be a lie. Right. Well, and algorithmically... And financially, I think these, it's been proven, these, and it's been well documented that these social media companies have a vested financial interest in putting forward content that causes people to have an emotional response. Of course Because they that do. keeps them on the platform. Of course So they, they have a kind of twisted incentive to disseminate hateful, wrongheaded, emotionally loaded content. 
because it makes people react and then lean in. Engagement is uh, is key, absolutely. And I mean, look, could they do more? Of course they could. They they censor, uh, content moderate, whatever you want to call it, pornography, beheadings, terrorism. I mean, I heard the other day there was some sort of live Facebook of the, the uh, Hamas attack in Israel that somehow slipped through. But I mean, they have a they have a team of, and this is not algorithmic, I mean, they have a team of human operators who scrub that kind of stuff as quickly as they can off their platform because they understand that it would hurt their business if they didn't. They don't feel that way about claims about the 2020 election or whether bleach can cure COVID. There was a bright shining moment when they did, you know, right, right before the uh, uh, the 2020 election, when they were, you know, they were putting up warnings or they were providing context. That's all gone now on Twitter. Uh, Musk has uh, what he calls community notes. Well, community notes are just, he's just crowdsourcing fact-checking. So guess what that's going to do? It just <laughs> brings in the trolls. It brings in the partisans. Now, you can have crowdsource fact-checking. Wikipedia does a brilliant job of it. But that was after many years of getting kicked in the teeth and learning how to do it the right way. And Musk is right at the, you know, the base uh, uh, and not doing it correctly, in my opinion. So I know you gotta you got to go, but I just, before I, uh, we part company, uh, mm -hmm. I want to mention, first of all, that there are additional things that you write about in your book politically and at the level of policy that might be done to help improve mm -hmm. the world and the environment that we live in. But for people listening, I think it's, it's critical for them to hear us talk at least briefly about things that individual human beings can do to help counter the kinds of things that we've been talking about. Uh, you, you know, you, we discussed earlier the importance of talking face to face with the true believers, yeah. uh, that being really the best way on an individual to individual level to try to cut through. But when you talk about win winning the information war, uh, if that is indeed what we are faced with, yeah. the first step you say is admitting that we are in one. Correct. And so many people are not willing to admit that. One of the scariest books I ever read, got it right here, The Handbook of Russian Information Warfare. It's a really slim volume. This is by a NATO researcher trying to prepare American and other Western troops for the war we're already in with Russia, an information war. We've been in it for 20 years. He wants soldiers and commanders in NATO you know, to understand how it works. And so, yes, damn right. You cannot win an information war unless you're willing to admit that you're in one. Now, look, once you admit that you're in one, then what do you do, right? Okay, so it's not a natural disaster. It's not misinformation. I don't just put my head down, down and write it out. It's disinformation. It's a war, which means I can fight back. So at the end of my book, you, you know, you referred to the, to the chapter, uh, how to, I think I called it How to Win the War on Truth or something like that at the end. And I mean, the first step we've just talked about is an important one, but I'll, I'll give you another one that, that's actually not in that chapter, but it's a, a tidbit that I think is actually 
uh, uh, due to uh, to someone else. Let me see if I can if I can find it here. Yeah. So I just did a show last night with Joan Donovan, who's one of the world's leading experts on disinformation. She gave testimony before Congress a few years back. You know, basically saying that if we didn't solve this problem, it was going to be democracy's end. And one thing that she pointed out that I, I thought was, I mean, this is just brilliant, is people want to know how to push back on the social media companies. So what do you do? Quit the platform? Do they care? You write them a nasty letter? Do they care? You know, how, how do you influence a company like Facebook or Twitter? She made the point that why don't we put more pressure on the gatekeepers of those platforms? I mean, because people forget that the internet is like a layer cake. You see YouTube, you see Twitter, you see Facebook. But what about the web hosts or the web traffic controllers or the content delivery networks or the financial services that help those platforms work? So why are so we're writing nasty letters to Twitter and Facebook? Why aren't we also complaining about the content on those platforms to Amazon Web Services, Apple's App Store, GoDaddy, WordPress, Akamai, PayPal, Venmo? Imagine that. How many hundred letters would you need to Venmo complaining about what's happening on Twitter before Venmo said, We're, we don't like this anymore? I mean, Tucker Carlson began his spiral because he started to lose advertisers. I mean, people can argue about what ultimately let him in, uh, did him in, uh, uh, devolving relationship with his boss. You know, he was caught lying, you know, in the Dominion lawsuit. Part of it was financial. He started to lose his advertisers. So one of the things I recommend in the book is don't just go after the people that you think are doing the wrong thing. Go after their advertisers. If you don't like the way MSNBC or CNN are covering disinformation, don't just write to them. Write to the advertisers on the show. Complain to them about the coverage on which, you know, they were just, they, they were just advertising Ozempic and you refused to take, you know, to take it because, uh, you know, that was advertised on this show in which you didn't like their coverage of disinformation. People have more power. I'm just using that as an example because I see the Ozempic commercial all the time. People have more power than they think. The primary goal of disinformation is to get you to believe a falsehood. Secondary goal is to polarize you and get you to distrust people on the other side. Tertiary goal is to make you feel helpless, cynical, but you're not helpless. There are things that you can do to fight and win the war on truth. And I don't see anybody else coming to save us. I think we have to do this ourselves. But this is something I heard Joan say last night on the program, and, and I've said myself, there are more of us than there are of them. There are more people who care about truth then don't. There are more people who care about democracy in the United States than don't. So let's get busy. We have a voice. We need a microphone. We need to use the repetition effect. We need to get the word out. That's how I think we're going to win this. Even if it's only a year. I think back to the Women's March. Look, look at all those protests when Trump was elected. Those were enormously effective in, in you know, reining in what he was able to do. And that was after he was elected. Imagine if we had mass grassroots uh, um, action 
surrounding you know some of these issues before the 2024 election even occurred we could do a lot and so you know my guerrilla marketing campaign for my book i joke with my editor is i want people to buy the book but then i don't want them to put it on the shelf as a trophy i want them to pass it to a friend leave it on the bus leave it in your uber let somebody else read it you know uh, pass it hand to hand it's small I want people to be able to put it in their back pocket and give it to somebody else. I want to reach as many readers as possible. Well, it is. I'm holding it right here. You can read this book in a sitting, and it will get you started in terms of understanding the playing field that we are on right now and also understanding ways in which you can be proactive in trying to preserve democracy and preserve preserve an environment where truth matters and truth exists. It's an enormously useful text, and this has been a very useful conversation. I thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. All right, you guys, there we have it. That was my conversation with Lee McIntyre about disinformation and the war on truth. The name of his book is On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. It is available now from MIT Press. You can find Lee on the internet at leemcintyrebooks.com. You can also follow him on social media. I believe he is on Facebook and Twitter. Once again, the book is called On Disinformation. It is an excellent resource. You can read it in one sitting. I recommend it. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the Other People podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Go subscribe to my weekly email newsletter over at Substack and join the Other People Patreon community at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a quick favor, help support this show, Give the show a rating and write a review wherever you listen. It helps new listeners find the show. If you would like to get another people t-shirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. And finally, if you would like to read my latest novel, it is out there and it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if that sounds good, you can read my book. It's called Be Brief and tell them everything. All right, so coming up on Friday, there will be another flashback episode where I dig into the Other People archives and share an outtake from an episode of Your. And then on Sunday, I will be in conversation with author Athena Dixon. She has a new essay collection out called the Loneliness Files. It is available from Tin House. I had a very fascinating conversation with Athena Dixon coming up on Sunday. All right? Stay tuned.